This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. Zach Ben, a Navajo entrepreneur, father, and farmer, is turning his corn crops into baby food under the name Bitty Baby Foods. A new cookbook, Corn Dance, takes readers and cooks on a journey through the life and travels of Potawatomi chef Loretta Barrett Odin. And what better way to acknowledge and celebrate National Hispanic Heritage Month than learn about the global impact of foods from indigenous Latin America. That's on the menu on Native America Calling right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Indigenous people in Winnipeg are continuing to raise concerns and call on officials to search landfills for their missing and murdered relatives. Among the Indigenous women they want found and brought home are Morgan Harris, 39, and Mercedes Myron, 26. Police believe the women are victims of an alleged serial killer and that the remains could be in a landfill. Two camps have been set up in efforts to keep pressure on officials and draw awareness to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, two-spirit and gender-diverse people. So there's Cat uh, Morgan and... On an August morning, firekeeper Shining Gold Star, who lives in Winnipeg, talks about Camp Mercedes, named after Mercedes Myron. He's been there since it was first set up in July in the city next to the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. It's to honor the missing and murdered, especially in the landfill. Its focus is on search the landfill. Gold Star walks around the camp where there are a handful of tents and a camp kitchen. Signs are posted all around. Some read, We are not garbage. Search the landfills and no more stolen sisters. There are red handprints and art drawn on sidewalks and benches along walking paths near a river and park. There are also a number of empty red dresses displayed, symbolizing those who've gone missing and murdered. The government does not want to look because not only is there in there, but there's other people in there. They don't want to, they're going to have to explain things. I've had people come up to me with shovels from every community, black, white, and blue, and they all said the same thing. We'll do it. A more than 30-minute drive from Camp Mercedes is the city-operated Brady Landfill, where distress flags fly at Camp Morgan, named after Morgan Harris. There are also red dresses positioned around the camp, tents, a wigwam, and teepees. Some people say they've been there since December, while others, like Ida Manuel from British Columbia, felt compelled to come here this summer. My heart going out to the families affected and just had to answer that call. Remains of Rebecca Cantois, 24, another victim, were found at Brady last year. A blockade at the road leading up to the landfill had previously been set up, but was dismantled. Now, dumping continues. For us to have to stand and say, you know, we are not trash, and still not be heard, you know, it really needs to be connected. Canada's lack of respect with what colonialism set out to do to Indigenous. The other landfill, Prairie Green, is privately operated outside of Winnipeg. The Manitoba government is citing costs and health and safety concerns for not conducting a search at Prairie Green for Harris and Myron. 
Advocates say they're prepared to camp through the winter. They're also hoping new leadership of the province will be elected in October to offer assistance. Last year, Jeremy Sabicki, 35 at the time, was charged for the murder of the three women and a fourth unidentified woman. The overall number of maternal deaths nationwide rose from more than 500 to more than 1,200. That's according to a recent study in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Black and American Indian and Alaska Native mothers had the highest number of deaths per 100,000 live births. The rate for black moms rose from about 27 to 55. The American Indian and Alaska Native rate rose from 14 to about 49. Health experts say many factors play into these numbers, including lack of services. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support from AmeriCorps VISTA, whose members serve to alleviate poverty while earning money for college and gaining professional skills. Rewarding service opportunities can be found at A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is The Menu on Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy, and this is our special feature on Indigenous food and food sovereignty. Corn harvest season is upon us, and that means traditional farmers like Zechariah Ben are busy harvesting, preserving, and processing their bounty for soups, breads, and seed. He, he turns his Navajo white corn into baby food for sale through his company, Biddy Baby Foods. And then Potawatomi chef Loretta Barrett-Odin's new cookbook, Corn Dance-inspired First American Cuisine, is out on October 3rd. But we'll take an early look at the recipes and stories that are a collection of her life as an OG of the Native food sovereignty movement. But first, I'd like to acknowledge National Hispanic Heritage Month during this hour by focusing on the global importance of indigenous Latin American cuisine, how it shapes contemporary American culinary landscapes and trends, and the indigenous communities it comes from. As always, you can join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. Tell us about the Native Food Sovereignty Initiatives happening in your Native community. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us from Los Angeles, California, is Enrique Ochoa. He's a professor of Latin American uh, Studies and History at California State University, LA. Welcome to the menu, Enrique. Thanks, Andy. It's great to be here with you. 
Yeah. So um, let's start off with uh, some of the the food inventions that come from Mexico and Latin America. Uh, can you tell me about some of those important ingredients that were um, uh, created in those areas? Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And again, what's oftentimes referred to as Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latina, or Hispanic foodways, right? I think first and foremost need to be emphasized, right? These are these are based in indigenous foodways. Um, these are indigenous foods that then are later on as well mixed with, right? African, West African traditions and foods, uh, and and clearly European uh, traditions and foods, and so that there is this very rich, healthy diverse diet, right, that emerges from indigenous, indigenous America throughout the Americas, um, but in our context, right, from what we oftentimes now see as Latin America that's based on, you know, the draws on the diverse ecosystem in which people fed themselves and were able to maintain strong, vibrant communities uh, for hundreds and thousands, for thousands of years, excuse me, right, until 1492 and the conquest. And so there's this deep history that's there that people sustain themselves and they, of course did it differently in different areas uh, and this you know starts yeah with cult of, with hunting uh, and gathering and and adapting to and adapting the native um, uh, the flora and fauna but also then with the cultivation so I mean as you said what kind of foodstuffs do we know clearly maize beans squash um, manioc uh, which is cassava, right, uh, tomatoes, right, numerous um, different foods that grew here that, yeah, Europe did not know about. And, and, and people, um, chocolate, add chocolate to that. And as communities kind of, right, learned to tame the wild grasses of Teosintle uh, and cultivated them and began to, right, grow maize throughout the area. This will diffuse throughout the Americas. So there's this great base of, of, of diet that's there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, how did these ingredients become so widespread? I mean, you mentioned chocolate, you mentioned uh, tomatoes. I know potatoes are also um, right. uh, first cultivated from these indigenous communities, too. But they are such a uh, an important staple and uh, cultural food for uh, uh, countries all across the globe. How, how did that how did they go, uh, come to spread all over the place? Right. Well, again, I think this this starts right early on as different communities begin to uh, right are growing their crops, and, right? Potatoes uh, and and the hundreds of varieties of potatoes in the Andes, uh, as as maize is being cultivated um, throughout Mesoamerica, and then slowly right diffusing throughout the Americas. This is going to happen through a process of trade, right? Indigenous communities throughout the Americas trading and with each other, um, sharing knowledge uh, of, of various foodways, adapting to others. And so many ways, of course, by the time the Europeans colonized um, in, in, the, in the 1490s and throughout the 15th and 16th, 16th and 17th centuries, right, a lot of, there's already been a lot of diffusion throughout the Americas right, by indigenous communities. And, and, and creating these strong communities that are there and, and sharing techniques because right, a lot of what we see as right, so-called Mexican food and, and, uh, and other Latin food right, are, are, are based in um, the 
knowledges of and the ways of life of folks in the Americas, right? I always love to talk about maize or maize, right, which, which at this point is, is clearly a worldwide um, food, food stuff eaten widely everywhere. But the way it develops in the Americas and its connection with the growth of maize intercropped with the other two sisters of beans and squash, right, creates this very um, beautiful uh, and, and extremely ecologically sound um, system of, of, of eating, in which of eating and growing and, and connecting with the land. So the maize is able to grow. It has tall stock for the bean vines to reach up to the sun on, to stay away from any insects that might eat it. The squash grows below and protects the, the taller plants from the spread of, of weeds and keeps the weeds down uh, that may affect the beans uh, and, the, and the maize. Um, maize draws heavy nitrogen from the soil, and the beans replenish it. And squash limits erosion. And in the process, right, they all eat well together, a good succotash uh, of, of the three mixing. And based on that, right, there's a whole kind of wealth of, uh, of, of carbohydrates and amino acids that's all there. That this system that develops over the course, right, of thousands of years, um, then in many ways, right, with the arrival of, of, of Spain and other colonizers, right, gets ripped away. Uh, and, and communities, right, have to struggle to maintain it. And, and, but, but larger systems are trying to erase, try to erase that, that process and then, and then take the, the, the crops out of context uh, and then pull individual ones, right, to meet European needs uh, and spread it that way. Right, right. And, um, you know, thinking about uh, American food and how it has, um, you know, changed so drastically over time, um, just in our lifetimes here, like how have our views of uh, Latin American food changed over time, really, in, in America? Yeah, within the U.S., um, it's an interesting question, right? I think uh, uh, what we might see as right, Latin American food, and again with this ind its indigenous base, I think from early on, right in the U.S., um, the racism of kind of European ideas were carried on, right? As Europeans were trying to do what they did, um, right, colonize and erase people's ways of life and take land and the like, they worked hard to also wage war against the food pe people ate. Uh, and therefore dismiss the food as not healthy, as right, all kinds of, there are all kinds of, of, of invectives that they use to, to, to denigrate um, Latino foods. And that gets passed on, right, through both European colonization, but also in, in, in U.S. colonization uh, of, of the Americas um, through imperialism and wars, is to downplay that and and consequently you don't see right there there are only selective foods that then kind of get held up um, in in U.S. popular culture as potentially what um, interesting or 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 popular uh, and a lot of this has to do I think with that deep embedded racism clearly over the last couple of decades right so-called Latin food Latino food have have become much more popular 
in in the ways that I think we can see a lot of foods that we that we know of, like tacos and others, and burritos and the like, being being present, but others other more again indigenous based foods that are that are showing up in high end restaurants, right? All this kind of takes it to a different level. It often, of course, takes it to a different level, right? Because it's appropriated by mm-hmm. uh, elite chefs, right? White European chefs and Europeanized Latin American chefs uh, who are taking, again, indigenous food ways and then uh, adding kind of their French twist on it, their French cooking twist on it, uh, and oftentimes, right, disassociating it from indigenous communities mm-hmm. and indigenous ways. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting to see how it's, um, uh, you know, like Asian food and Mexican food, you know, these things weren't, uh, uh, if you believe it or not, weren't very popular long time ago. It was a lot of, um, you know, mayonnaise and white bread and, you know, those uh, like jello mold kind of foods. That was where, um, you know, our, our American cuisine kind of comes from. Um, and now it's like incredibly diverse. And even the, um, you know, the meat media coverage and uh, cookbook shelves are so incredibly diverse and, and very inclusive of uh, so many different kinds of flavors and ingredients. I mean, people are definitely a lot more, um, you know, uh, attuned to different flavors and spices than uh, our parents and grandparents and great grandparents were. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit more, a little bit more about this right after this break, but you can join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. The final season of Reservation Dogs wrapped up this week, bringing an end to what could be called Native America's new favorite comedy. The show has gotten accolades from TV and entertainment critics, and we want to know what you think. A Reservation Dogs recap is on the next episode of Native America Calling. Support by AARP. Despite their service to our country, U.S. military vets, active duty service members, and their families are targeted by con artists significantly more than civilians and are 40% more likely to lose money than civilians. Vigilance is our number one weapon against fraud. You have the power to protect yourself. If an offer sounds too good to be true, it probably is. More at aarp.org slash vetsfraudnetwork. You are listening to The Menu on Native America Calling, our regular indigenous food feature. I'm Andy Murphy. There's plenty of time to join us today with food news from your Native community. Call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I want to bring back uh, Enrique Ochoa, Professor of Latin American Studies and History at Cal State LA. Um, uh, 
uh, Enrique, we were just talking about uh, the evolution of American cuisine and um, when uh, different food and ingredients become really popular. Uh, so, So tacos are actually still pretty popular right now in America. And when when foods like these become popular, how does it affect our collective views of uh, Latin American food? And, and then how does it uh, affect the community these foods come from? Yeah, no, no, that's a great question. Um, because there's a lot of there's a lot of contradiction, right, that, that kind of comes forward. And so yes, um, Foods like tacos and tortillas and, and right, numerous different foods are becoming widely popular. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean, right, that, uh, that, that, that Latinas, Latinos, uh, Latinet people, uh, indigenous Latin Americans, right, are necessarily being valued in, in that. And, and the example I always like to, like to give, right, and again, there are numerous examples, is at the same time that kind of tacos and tortillas, right, are, are selling, right, faster than white bread in the U.S. Um, most of the large companies that have appropriated, right, the, the knowledge of indigenous women uh, who created, right, tortillas and, and developed the recipes and the formulas, if you will, um, to do so, um, right, are, are male-operated and male-run and mestizo men-run, and through their even telling of the stories on their websites and in their propaganda, right, they write out indigenous women and the role of indigenous women, right? And, and again, that, and so what oftentimes happen is that the knowledge systems that are required to have actually produced it and nurtured the foods and keep them going for so long get appropriated, uh, taken out, and 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 indigenous women in this context, right, erased from that story so often in the larger story. So while it's great that more people are eating it, right, in the process, there's a growing gap there. I mean, remember, indigenous women developed the nixtamalization process to take regular maize uh, from the corn cup into, the, into making the masa, and by doing so, they added limestone water, which is calcium hydroxide, to make it stick, hold together, but also to add amino acids and release the niacin, uh, which is part of the B-complex um, um, right, B complex diet, and enhance the protein. Mm-hmm. And without that, without that process and that then could be used to make the tortillas, to make the tacos, right, um, that whole kind of food complex would not have existed. Um, because, right, in communities where only grains of corn are used and as the base of the diet, uh, pulenta for southern Italians, um, right, other um, grits in the, in the U.S. South, where that's the base of the diet, right, there are all kinds of diseases that emerge mm-hmm. from it that indigenous women were able to figure out how to circumvent. And so that knowledge, that scientific knowledge is so powerful. And now when we see the, uh, the rise, the uses of tortillas and of tacos, oftentimes in restaurants, women are kind of taken out of that process mm-hmm. or tokenized mm-hmm. in that process, right? To be, be there patting their tortilla. So again, there is this, on the one hand, 
right, explosion, if you will, of the foods, and there is a kind of growing gap um, in terms of the knowledge systems and where it came from, and, of course, in terms of wages and who's profiting from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it seemed like just a couple of years ago it was really fascinating to learn that a restaurant or a small company made uh, corn tortillas from uh, masa and actually mm-hmm. used the tortilla press and put it on the grill themselves and everything. I mean, but now it seems like there, there of course, are more restaurants that do it, but I just learned of a company that will send you a box that has like a bag of uh, uh, dry masa mix you just Mm -hmm. add water and then you get your little you know the box comes with a little tortilla press and then you can have tortillas and it's just the shipped to you anybody can get something like that and i thought you know this is maybe becoming too much it's not (laughs) i mean it's kind of like you know that that uh you know child's like you know cooking toy or something like that but um you know when, when popularization like this happens um how does affect maybe like the the food supply um that uh yeah. you know ultimately comes from indigenous communities yeah no no another right important point um i guess the great example of course is quinoa right um the the quinoa craze of the last i don't know decade and a half right um grown grown for centuries in the andean region um, kind of an important basis of people's uh, diet, very highly nutritious, right? Um, and, of course, a wonder food. But when it's identified as a wonder food, right, in the U.S. and in, and in Europe um, in the 1990s, then right away that creates this great demand for it. And, of course, something like quinoa can only be grown in, in very high um, plains, um, right, of which I guess there are folks trying to grow it in Colorado at this point and some parts of in northern New Mexico. Um, but really, that Andean region is ideal. And so with that, there becomes a, a kind of equivalent of a gold rush. That is, a, the price goes up, the communities there that are, that are producing it um, then oftentimes face an assault on the land by um, people with some finance, um, right, so capitalists come in and begin to say, "Okay, you're producing this. How can I buy out your land and grow and have larger farmers and how, farms? And how do we monocrop it, right, um, and produce large amounts in a more efficient way to meet the market demand in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And when that kind of gold rush type of, of phenomenon happens, right away, that greatly transforms the local community." in that people lose access to the land. Um, they may have jobs, right, uh, on the farm, uh, harvesting and, and, uh, and sowing, but those are temporary. Um, those are temporary. They don't necessarily have access to their lands. And, and, the, and therefore, their autonomy is infringed upon. Their ability to right, connect with their communities, to, to meet the needs of their communities, um, the food needs, the cultural needs, um, right, become much more in peril. And oftentimes many people then are forced off those lands in a kind of a, in, in, a, in a violent displacement, whether it's yeah. actually physical environment, it's an uprooting nevertheless. And so when that begins to happen, 
right? Communities suffer. On a, uh, at the same time, they may have access to a wage now to a greater degree that they didn't before. But what's lost in the process? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we know from prior gold rushes, once the gold rush aside's or once the market wants something else and sees another wonderful food, then it'll drop what happened there, and the communities are left, right, to pick up the pieces. Right. Um, and right. so, again, right, it, it's a kind of catch-22 because on the one hand, those are, you know, nutritious and important foods, um, but what its ramifications are for workers and communities, right, it, it's hard for us to take into account if we don't have that information because we're so disconnected, right, from our food system, Mm -hmm. from who grows, who prepares, who produces, um, Mm -hmm. right, what what that animal, what we have no relationship oftentimes with what that, with who the, who that animal is that that we're consuming. Mm -hmm. If it's one, right, in many days, of course, it's a hundred different animals ground together. Um, Those disconnections, right, are, are tremendous, and so uh, again, right, part of a more right food sovereignty movement, a more food justice, food sovereignty movement is beginning to ask those questions: Who produces the food? What happens to the lands? Where is that knowledge coming from? If we're using that knowledge, if we're drawing upon that knowledge, how are we valuing it? Right. Right, right, and um, uh, there's there's so many questions to ask, and I know there's a lot of people out there who are, um, you know, finding those answers and and building movements around it in their own little communities, in their tribes, uh, different regions across the country, and really looking back at, uh, you know, our uh, indigenous uh, cousins and neighbors to uh, the south of us here in uh, North America. Uh, th- thank you so much, Enrique, for joining us. I want to uh, go ahead and go over to our uh, other guest we have here uh, from Shiprock. We have Zachariah Ben. He's the owner and co-founder of Biddy Baby Foods, and he's Dene. Welcome to the menu, Zach. Yeah, good morning. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for joining. So, uh, you know, we were just talking uh, to Enrique about, um, you know, uh, creating, um, you know, different solutions for, you know, some of these uh, issues that we face as indigenous people when it comes to access and when it comes to, you know, like traditional, uh, you know, uh, authentic foods. And your uh, company is uh, maybe one of those answers, I guess, to those questions and those issues there. Uh, tell me a little bit about Biddy Baby Foods. What is the, what's the base food here? Yeah, so for us at Bitty Baby Foods, we produce and specialize in making traditional baby food. Um, and this was inspired by our firstborn uh, two and a half years ago, uh, going about and researching our available markets as indigenous people, of being able to um, have that uh, ability that, that you learn as you're growing as a new parent of, like, I want quality, I want uh, a market that is specific to my people and my child so that they can develop and have access to that nutrition at a very early age, which is very crucial because, you know, we're encoding our children to um, 
prefer our own first foods over processed and, preserved, uh, processed and preserved foods of today. Um, and in order to do this, uh, we decided that, you know, we as farmers, after all of our research, like, we are it. We have to be the they. They should, they should create these markets. They should um, create baby foods. They should have this um, access, um, and they should have a better sustainable solution or, or food system and we thought to ourselves, like, it's, it's not happening. It's not, it currently does not fully exist. And the reason for a lot of this is that historical um, time of, you know, colonialism when we, when we came into first contact over 500 years ago, um, being able to go through that genocide, the industrialization, um, and, and a lot of what our, my brother was talking to Enrique about you know, being able to commercialize these foods and 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 retag them, of you know, non-GMO, um, <laughs> uh, all these new sexy terms of now about, and so it, it was up to us as parents, as farmers, as providers, as community members, and in, in our indigenous areas to stand up and 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 advocate um, uh, to be able to protect this technical ecological knowledge and steward the land. So that land can then be a foundation for our children to thrive in, not to learn how to survive in. Right, right. I like how you say technical, ecological knowledge, uh, you know, what otherwise is like TEK. Um, but it is very much a science. Um, I think when a lot of folks talk about uh, indigenous food and uh, agriculture, they don't really maybe attach it to science, but it definitely is. Um, so you are um, out harvesting corn right now in uh, your field over there in uh, the Shiprock area. Can you tell me what um, what the whole process is like? How do you make one bag of um, bitty baby food? Yes, that's a, that is a very a special process for us. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, we ritualize this process, and that's something that you know we, we, we talk about disconnect. But what about the connection? What about finding those, those areas where we can synchronize ourselves with the elements that surround us. Um, and then a little bit of cultural background, um, the Diné philosophy talks to about our, our genesis, our creation as human beings, and we derive from the corn. Out of cornmeal, we were made into this, to, to, to these humans of, of now we stand here today between Mother Earth and Father Sky. And so with that concept, with, that, with those values um, of, of nature's laws intact to this day, uh, something that I take pride in as a Diné person of, you know, not having that severed. Um, you know, back in the, uh, of the battles of, you know, 1864, when our leaders fought so hard to prevent the U.S. Army from migrating us further south where the land um, was hard, um, it could not sustain life. Um, and, and one of those, those warriors, those, those leaders, is much Chief Arbencito. Um, and, his, and one of his quotes that I um, talk to to this day and, and still use to this day and teach my children, teach the people that visit our farm, um, our farmer in residence program, is, you know, for him, he envisioned this future where if you look to the east, it'll be green with corn. At the horizon with the corn, with the land, the corn will meet the morning horizon. Uh, to the east, it'll meet the southern horizon. It will meet the 
western horizon and it, it will meet the northern horizon. And in order for this dream to be, be a reality, we had to we had to have access, he fought for access to water. And now today we have access to the San Juan River here, which is now the you know, that turns into the Colorado River. And we are continuing that battle to this day of, you know, fighting those colonial constructs that continue to adverse us. But why don't we use that in our favor? Why don't we create these our, our, our own economies again? Why don't we start to build up and develop our own generational wealth so that way our children can inherit that in their future, not inherit trauma? And so while we were thinking of all these realities that can be possible, these environments that our children can thrive in, it started with the food. It started with encoding our children to that food, to the land immediately. And that was through um, the, the, the Diné, but not Donskai, the Navajo Indian white corn. Mm-hmm. And so with that, we, what we do is we'll harvest that, we'll take it, um, and, and we'll dig these 10 foot deep by 4 foot wide steam pits underground. Um, we'll harvest wood throughout the season. Hey, uh, Zach, we're, we're going to go to a quick break, but we'll get right back to that afterwards, okay? Support for journalism that raises the awareness of child well-being to citizens and to policymakers provided by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, building a brighter future for children, families, and communities. Information at aecf.org. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of T-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. You're tuned to The Menu on Native America Calling, which is our special feature on indigenous food and food sovereignty. I'm Andy Murphy. And uh, joining us from Shiprock is Zachariah Ban, uh, owner and co-founder of Bitty Baby Foods. Uh, Just before the break, Zach, you were talking about uh, harvesting uh, corn, and then uh, you mentioned digging a 10-foot wide pit uh go go ahead and continue how, how does the uh, corn turn into bitty baby foods yes thank you so much and uh you know for us uh, what we'll do is we'll dig this 10 foot deep by four foot wide steam pit in the ground mm-hmm. uh, and it becomes an earthen oven uh, where we build the fire in the morning uh, we'll let that burn continuously throughout the day while the fire is going we'll come out to the cornfields and that's where we'll um, start harvesting um, and so for us, we like our corn a little bit mature. Um, and then from there, we'll take that back to the steam pits at the end of the day, put them into the pit, um, and, and, then, and then seal that for the night. Um, for 12 hours straight, it'll cook underground. So it's a primitive version of a, uh, of a modern-day pressure cooker. Um, and so for us, we'll, we'll come back in the morning, we'll take it out of the pit, um, and you can just imagine the amount of heat during that time in the morning. Um, We'll take that corn out of the pit, dehusk them, lay them out to dehydrate, um, and then from there we'll take it to a commercial kitchen setting where we will then mill down, shuck them down, winnow it, um, and then from there um, mill that down and then package them there in the commercial kitchen setting. Um, and you know, for us as producers here of Bitty Baby Foods, a lot of those values are incorporated into our farm operations here, uh, we don't use herbicides, pesticides, 
Uh, we use um, modern technology and, 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 and merging that with uh, traditional ways of farming. Um, so we'll use uh, tractors to cultivate in between the rows to mitigate the weed growth. Um, we'll use uh, un above ground PVC irrigation piping to you know, get the water, uh, gain access to the water, um, which is pumped from the river. Um, so you know, being able to merge the two um, and adapt to our current environment so that way we can still have that ability to create these traditional foods without having to commercialize or industrialize that process and take care of the, these heritage heirloom seeds that have been passed down for us for generations now. Okay. All right. And, um, you know, the process you're describing, it kind of um, reminds me of uh, Navajo cake. Uh, does it does it taste like Navajo cake or uh, you know, what does it taste like? Yeah, so it, it's a very unique cake. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it tastes like Navajo cake uh, where it has, you know, some of that uh, some of the dirt that's inside of the cake, but also um, has a more like a not smoky, but just that, that fire taste to the, the, the earthy taste. Um, and of course, the water plays an important role when you're steaming it underground. Um, and so for us, we we'll like to use that fresh water um, straight from um, the river here. And that's what will create that, that steam will, is what will create that pressure, which then creates that unique taste of what um, Nishijiji provides, that Navajo dry steam corn. Okay. All right, and um, so so your um, your your son has been eating uh, these foods for I guess a while now. Um, how does he like it, and how does the uh, maybe recipe kind of change? Uh, do you add different ingredients and uh, uh, you know sweeteners and stuff like that? Yeah. So our 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 son's first reaction to the his first food was an ishiji. Um And for us, we were, that was confirmation that we needed to head in this direction. Um, his reaction was the reaction that we wanted for the rest of our community um, when he tasted that first spoonful that my wife was able to feed him. Um, and so after that, my wife would experiment by, you know, mixing in. Um, what she'll do is she'll uh, bring the, the milled down cereal into like a porridge consistency um, and then from there, add in the um, like uh, sweet potato that's boiled down, some apples, some peaches, some spinach, um, puree a couple of those ingredients together, and then she'll have the meals for the rest of the week for our son to be able to enjoy those first foods with our modern um, plates that we have access to today. Um, and so, you know, those were some of the ways that we felt like, you know, this is. Um, the path that we need to take. This is what we need for our people to um, be able to enjoy, but most importantly, heal with these special foods. Um, and I say special because of the, the process that it, it takes from, from seed to irrigation to cultivating to harvesting. Um, all of that labor of love for, uh, and, and those values of the Deneh ways of, of farming all um, are a part of that process. And, and most importantly, to ritualize that process, to, to go out to your cornfield and pray to it, um, to give thanks to the land and have that reciprocity of, you know, what you extract from the land, you put back in. And now that new term of, you know, regenerative agriculture comes about from that. But, you know, those are things that we're continuing to protect by having these active farmlands thriving to this day as farmers here 
and as many baby foods. All right. All right, that uh, was Zachariah Ben from Biddy Baby Foods. Um, we've got links to everybody on our website, nativeamericacalling.com. Uh, our show will be archived there as well, so you can listen back. And um, I want to invite in our last guest here uh, from Oklahoma City is Loretta Barrett Odin. She's the first Americans Museum chef, consultant, and creator host of Seasoned with Spirit, A Native Cook's Journey, which is an Emmy Award-winning PBS miniseries. She's Citizen Potawatomi. Welcome back to the menu, Loretta. Uh, hi, Andy. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you can join us today. Uh, so, Corn Dance inspired First American Cuisine. That is your new cookbook. Uh, tell us about the the name, Corn Dance. Why, why name it Corn Dance? Well, that comes from um, my son and I's restaurants, our first restaurants in Santa Fe, uh, the Corn Dance Cafes. And while we were researching and trying to uh, name those restaurants in the early days, we thought of the celebration of food. And, uh, of course, we're using a lot of corn and beans and squash, uh, but it just seemed fitting and proper and it sounded good, Corn Dance Cafe. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think many folks know that, uh, uh, you know, Corn Dance and, um, you know, your early days here in Santa Fe, I mean, y- you were kind of one of the first who was really putting indigenous food out there and really kind of creating um, a stir about it here uh, in um Santa Fe. So uh, this this cookbook, you know, it starts out with uh, your story and how uh, you got to open up the Corn Dance Cafe. And then that led you just full force into learning about indigenous food and your own uh, indigenous uh, food and, uh, f- you know, some of those comfort foods from your family. Um, what kind of maybe personal stories are our folks going to be getting into when they open up those first pages of uh, your your cookbook? Oh, there's a lot of the personal journey there. Um, I love to uh, share, you know, what this what this long road has been. This book has taken me about 30 plus years to write. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm, I have it in my hand right now and I'm going, I can't believe I finally got this out. <laughs> but it does talk a lot about, um, you know, the journey, the, the foods that I grew up with, and then, you know, my taking off and really researching foods all around the country, throughout Indian country. And it's been such a fulfilling, exciting um, time and to get it down in print in this book, uh, it's it's fabulous. Yeah, and and it's a, a very good looking book too. I also have it in front of me uh, right here, and um, of course, you know, I love the photos here. And I'm always curious about that process, uh, working with a photographer and, uh, you know, going through, you know, a first run through of the of the recipes and then another one and then another one. And, you know, uh, but what was that process like for you to work with with a photographer for this book? Well, you know, fortunately, 
uh, my co-writer, Beth Dooley, mm-hmm. uh, made it quite painless. And this book was put together with Beth and the photographer being in Minneapolis and me being in Oklahoma City. So I made, you know, a trip to Oklahoma, up to Minneapolis and we talked through uh, all of the foods and the feel and the look that I was looking for. We, we wanted to gear this book towards the home cook, mm-hmm. you know, not the really fancy platings and all of that. But the real basic, beautiful uh, visions uh, of this food and to let those, you know, the true beginnings of the dish shine through. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was fairly painless. Mete, the photographer, was amazing. Uh, I think, too, the photographs are beautiful. I think she did a fabulous job. <laughs> yeah, and, um, you know, when we talk about uh, indigenous foods, I know uh, there's a lot of emphasis on uh, pre-contact foods, you know, no dairy, no, um, you know, things like uh, butter or, um, let's see, what else, uh, like sugar. But this book includes some of that. Um, I just saw heavy cream. I just saw some uh, dry white wine. Um, you know, what? why include those ingredients in uh, a book like this? Um, I do try to stay with the pre-contact foods. Mm-hmm. Probably my ingredient base is around 90% or so. Uh, there are a few ingredients that I do uh, use. Uh, heavy cream kind of slipped in there <laughs> um, because, uh, you know, Beth is quite an acclaimed uh, cookbook writer, cookbook author. And so she had a lot to do with uh, forming these recipes. And, uh, you know, we worked tirelessly and endlessly on these recipes. Uh, I do say that in, you know, I try to stay away from as much refined sugar as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the white wheat flour uh, kind of gets in there occasionally. So I'm doing about, thinking about a, an 80-20 or a 90-10 mix of indigenous to uh, old world food ingredients. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, you just you just mentioned also that you're uh, gearing this towards more of the the home cook and what we might already have in our yeah. pantries. Um, but uh, uh, tell me a little bit about um, what you would really like uh, readers and home cooks and cooks to take away from uh, cooking some of these dishes and, and having that experience that comes from this cook book oh wow well andy you know you've been around this food you know forever and ever <laughs> and you know whenever you you speak to someone about native american food or indigenous food they go what is that mm-hmm. you know they haven't a clue and what i try to bring forth is these are foods you've been eating all of your life <laughs> you know all of the all of the ingredients uh what is it now 60 70 percent of the ingredients uh, around the world are indigenous to the Americas. Mm-hmm. So this is not new food. So that's what I want people to see is that you can create these beautiful recipes using, I mean, literally, you could use 100% indigenous ingredients and uh, come out with something absolutely delicious. So it's not weird and exotic food. It's everyday, comfortable, delicious food. 
Right, right. And um, what uh, I think now people are starting to maybe get a little bit of an education about the different regions and how different regions of uh, our, you know, country tastes and different regions of Native America getting a, a, a taste of, you know, the, the differences between, um, you know, our tribes and uh, just the, the availability of different ingredients. I mean, you have a couple of ing- uh, 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 recipes here that include like crawfish and have those Cajun, you know, um, influences. I mean, how, how um, uh, what, uh, what, what, I guess, is your favorite uh, region to, uh, I guess, eat from and cook from? Oh, my goodness, Andy, I can't go there. I mean, I can go anywhere and find my favorite food on any given day. Uh, certainly, I spent some time uh, down in the Gulf Coast region uh, with the Homa and the Chittimachi when I was doing the PBS series. And, you know, that that food is just, you know, out of sight, crawfish. Uh, we went out fishing in airboats at night and, you know, just catching a wonderful fish out of the water on the wood grill with just, you know, the slightest amount of a saucer or a seasoning. And it's just succulently delicious. Mm-hmm. I say succulently because I'm thinking of crawfish. Because you got to peel those crawfish, eat the tail, then you got to suck the head. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I like how you put a little bit of uh, instructions on how to eat a crawfish. I, I definitely didn't know how to do that the first time. <laughs> the right. first time I but, ordered crawfish. Yeah, I had a lot of instruction on that. But we were cooking crawfish uh, in Santa Fe. And uh, I grew up eating crawfish here in Oklahoma. So it was, you know, it was not a an exotic food for for us here in Oklahoma, even. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, well, Loretta, when does uh, the book come out? It drops on October third. Exciting, which is just around the corner. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm just, you know, finally. Everyone everyone that knows me well, you know, I say the book is dropping. They're going finally. Yeah. <laughs> So it has a lot of old, old recipes in it from my childhood, mm-hmm. as well as recipes developed, you know, over time at the corn dance and, and during my travels and events. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely see that there. I know I think the last two times I saw you or uh, talked to you, you, you mentioned uh, cookbooks coming soon and it's finally here. So congratulations yeah. on that. Um, of course, we have links to everybody here uh, who was on the show on our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com. Um, join us tomorrow for a recap and a farewell to Reservation Dogs. I'm Andy Murphy. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. The Association on American Indian Affairs and the Citizen Potawatomi Nation host the ninth annual Repatriation Conference on November 7th, 8th, and 9th. The conference provides in-person and virtual expert training about domestic and international repatriation. Learn how to register at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Support provided by Amerind. Amerind is 100% tribally owned and partners with tribes and their businesses to provide affordable commercial insurance coverage, protect tribal sovereignty, and strengthen Native American communities by helping to keep dollars in Indian country. 
information about property, liability, commercial auto, and workers' comp available at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.